0: An element, we talk about two things a lot. The first thing is Jesus. Always, Jesus, Jesus. Sometimes people say, you talk about Jesus too much. I don't know how I can talk about Jesus too much. Okay? <laughs> You just think I talk, You need to listen to Jesus more. That's what it is. And the second thing we talk about a lot is gospel communities. Uh, now, we thought it'd be a good idea to give you guys just a little heads up every once in a while to explain what gospel communities are. Uh, if you're new or newer and whenever we say GCs or gospel communities, you're like, I don't know what that means. We thought we'd, we'd talk about it. Uh, gospel communities are essentially what we would call missional communities. Uh, they're smaller groups that get together. And don't think small groups because it's not just small groups, but they're small groups of people who get together who. Uh, disciple one another by focusing on the gospel by speaking the gospel into one another's lives or spreading the love of jesus in each other's lives and to the community around us by living in these communities together now there's a book that a lot of our gospel communities are going through right now called called together and they define missional community this way they says it's a group of people who are learning to follow jesus together in a way that renews their city town village hamlet which somebody read too much Shakespeare, I think, but anyway, uh, or other space. They aren't fancy. In fact, they can be a messy community of everyday citizens who are devoted to Jesus, to one another, to their neighbors and their city. Uh, Currently, most of our GCs try to pick one night a week where they get together and we call it notes night, and they talk about the sermon notes and things like that to go a little bit deeper in that, but that's not all that it is because you cannot live in true gospel community if you only get together once a week. It needs to be much more than that. And so we try and have these gospel communities get together for lunches and dinners. Not everybody all together at the same time, but maybe different people out of it. They get together, they pray for one another, they love on one another, they serve one another, and hopefully in that they begin to serve their greater community as well. Because again, you cannot live life together one day a week. It has to be where you are doing it consistently together. And so we want to live our lives connected to one another, gospel one another, living the gospel in each other's lives. And those are gospel communities. If you want more information about gospel communities or you'd like to join one, uh, talk to people at the Welcome Center in the back, or you can talk to Sarah or right there. You can talk to Sarah right there. And she'd love to tell you more about it. Uh, If you are new, welcome to Element. Uh, There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They are shorter than normal. Uh, They're just the verses and some questions. Normally, we do a whole bunch of notes, but because we are doing the called together in a lot of our gospel communities, it's just like a half sheet. So you can grab that. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. Uh, it's called U Version. Click on Live, and U Version it will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes, the questions, the verses, some of the announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me, reading God's Word? Felt like a sermon already, didn't it? that's a lot of words you just said. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live in the substance of who you are. That our lives re- would reflect better you in everything that we say and everything that we do. And that all of our values and ideals would be set aside and it would act you would become the center of our lives. and everything that we do. So that you are lifted up in all things and your children live lives that glorify and honor you. Amen. Let's see. Alright, so we're in Pharisee University. This is week five. Again, hence the decor. It's our frat house. There's no hazing unless... You can't happen to look at this. But anyway, (laughs) there you go. Uh, This is our crash course over nine weeks where we help you to learn how to be a Pharisee or a better Pharisee if you are one or if you really just want to follow Jesus, how not to be a Pharisee at all. Uh, About two and a half years ago, I was reading this book called Accidental Pharisees by a guy named Larry Osborne. Kind of made me think of doing this series, so I kind of shoved it away in the back of my head. And now it's coming back around, and now we're actually doing it. Some of the things are right out of the book. Some of the things, not so much. Uh, But the Pharisees were religious leaders in Jewish society at the time of Jesus. They would be be what we would call fundamentalists. Uh, They were very focused on strict observance of Jewish laws and ceremonies and traditions. But just like fundamentalists today, the only place that fun is, is in the name. (laughs) Went over better in this service than last service. First service, everyone just went, (gasps) So, whatever. Okay. Uh, there, at the time of Jesus, there were about 6,000 Pharisees on the earth. Pharisees were mostly leaders in all the local synagogues. There's about 6,000 local synagogues through, throughout the area. But while they had all these synagogues, they still believed there's only one temple, which is in Jerusalem, because there was only one God. Now, to a lot of Pharisees, Jesus denounced them as being hypocrites, uh, because of, they always told people what to do, but didn't actually follow through on what they said To do, They have a lot of outward actions that that they're always trying to do, but not so much heart change in their lives. And so today, the best way, I think, to start off to get you where I want you to go is we're going to talk about the holy, religious, and righteous organization known as Facebook. (laughs) You know, uh, studies that they're coming out with now show that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are about your life. Because you think everybody else are doing all these fun things, and you're not. It's so like everybody else, is doing this and they don't invite me to do all that stuff. But when you post stuff, people say the same thing about you. They don't invite me. Oh my, and, and so everybody's just kind of depressed all the time looking at Facebook. So there you go. Uh, Facebook turned 10 last year. It is used by 57% of Americans. That's last year's statistic. It's higher this year. 82% of people in the U.K., two-thirds of Facebook users check it every single day. According to a Pew Research poll, 36% of Facebook users think their friends, not them, overshare. <laughs> sharing. Doesn't, doesn't stop you from looking because you all read it anyway. 27% are upset that someone saw a post that they didn't want them to see. Just shared it on Facebook. Okay, 50% of people like Facebook because they can share a lot of things in their lives with other people all at once. They don't have to have the messy thing of actually having to talk to people. Most people... Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Most people have about 200 friends on Facebook. I am really sorry, actually, if you have tried to friend me. I don't accept a lot of friend requests anymore because I have too many friends you all post on my wall. It drives me nuts. Not that it's all not just wonderful stuff you guys post on my wall. But, obviously, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, 12% of people on Facebook have said that someone in their friend network has asked them to unfriend somebody else in their friend network. How wonderful Facebook is, right? It's amazing. I, when I wrote this message, I'd been unfriended twice than I know of. Now it's three. So I am, my statistic is going up. 44% of Facebook users like content posted by their friends at least once a day. 29% do so several times a day. People spend a combined 20 billion minutes on Facebook every single day. On a daily basis, there are 350 million photos uploaded, 4.5 billion likes, 10 billion messages sent, and 22 billion times the like or share buttons are viewed. Now, why do I tell you this? Because I think the Pharisees would have loved Facebook. Because what it does, it's a great medium for living in the past while trying to ignore the future. It's a great place to try and convince everybody of all of your ideals and none of your values. See, ideals are ideals are what you say is important to you. Disappointing your kids, loving other people, worshiping Jesus, giving to your church, but values are what you actually do. Let your kids get away with murder, gossip and lie about others, never give and idealize yourself and your past. Now, I'm not saying all values are bad. He's like, oh, I hate you today, right? Okay, I'm not saying all values are bad. I don't mean to imply that, but many times our ideals and values are drastically different. Facebook, in our comments, people are always stating their ideals, but they're not stating how they actually live. They're not stating their values. And so we like to look at our past and connect with all these old friends and reminisce about all the good old days when things are so much better and things were so much different than they are today. And it's dangerous because we don't live in the past. We live in today, our future lies in front of us, not behind us. Now, this, this becomes really bad, especially with Facebook, because there are more and more studies coming out about things that take place on Facebook. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers says today one in five divorces involve Facebook. One in five. There's two reasons for that. Number one, because people overshare. 80, 80% of divorce lawyers say that they are able to find evidence of cheating based on Facebook. Overshare much? Second thing, second thing is that an old high school or college boyfriend or girlfriend will friend somebody, and people will start looking at their past thinking, oh, how wonderful that relationship was. Oh, that's so much better. And they start to develop a relationship again, which destroys the marriage that they're currently in when they're trying to work through certain issues. And that's my warning about Facebook. When that old high school girlfriend or boyfriend goes, hey, be my friend, just say no. (laughs) No, there's a reason why you're not dating them now. They're crazy. (laughs) At least mine were, anyway. So, But that's a sense why Pharisees love Facebook. They love to live in the past. They always look at the past with all these rose-colored memories of the past. They remembered things in the past being so much better than they actually were. They didn't understand that these days, the days we're living in today, these may actually be the good old days. They're blind to the present realities and they had an unrighteous dissatisfaction about where they were and where they are. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 10 says, Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It is not from wisdom that you ask that question. Again, the Pharisees thought the past was so much better than the present. But let me just walk through some of these things and look at that that with you. Uh, In the past, God's people, they're in slavery in Egypt. That's, That's not a good thing. But the amazing thing is that God comes in to rescue and redeem them from this world power called Pharaoh. God brings them out. God brings them to himself. They remember this. They speak about this a lot. But what the Pharisees forget is all the complaining that the people did along the way. Along the way, people are like, we have no food. Did you bring us out here in this desert to die? What's wrong with you? Why does God hate us? Uh, and they just complain the whole time. And, just, and so God, what he does is this amazing miracle. Every morning they get up, they have bread on the ground. It's called manna. God gives them bread from heaven every single day. And what do they eventually do? Oh, bread again? Manna, manna, manna. I hate manna. Why can't we have quail? So what does God do? God gives them quail. What do they do? Quail, quail, quail. They're always complaining. That's what they forget. They go to this mountain called Sinai. God gives them a covenant. It says, you're going to be my chosen people. You will be my priest. You will be my message to the world. That is what they remember. But they forget that when Moses came down from the mountain, all the people, they're worshiping a golden calf. They made with their own jewelry. Eventually, they get their own land, their own inheritance. They have a country called Israel. They got a great city known as Jerusalem. They got a great temple to worship at. They remember two of their great kings, David and Solomon. But they love to forget that Solomon is a child from a woman that David got by committing adultery with her and then killing her husband. Then remember Solomon as the wisest king, foreign officials coming in and, and bowing down to the wisdom of Solomon. First Kings 10, 6-9, a foreign king queen comes to Solomon and says, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came in my own eyes and seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. I mean, lays it on just pretty thick, right? Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. That's what they remember, 1 Kings 10. But they forget 1 Kings 9, verse 15 says, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. Forced labor. What's another name for Forced labor. Slavery, exactly. In Egypt, the Israelites are slaves. They cry out to God. He saves them. He gives them the mission and an identity to hear that cry, to work in the world, hear the oppressed. They're marginalized. And you find them win their own city in Jerusalem. They're building an empire using slaves. The oppressed became the oppressors. When God brought these slaves out, he told them, I rescued you by my grace. I brought you out. Have a Passover so you remember, so you remember, and you tell the story of this redemption. Be careful that you don't forget. And you find out about Solomon is that he forgot, and he conscripted slaves. The same thing his people once needed rescue from. That's what the Pharisees forgot. What happens is, is God sends to grow up His people. He sends them into uh, into captivity in Babylon, and what happens is they come back from Babylon, and the the Pharisees remember, oh, we were brought back from Babylon. They forget why they went to Babylon in the first place. That God sent them there to grow them up, to help them to realize that God is the one who holds them in His hands. That's what they forgot. See, idealism can be a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it can drive us to change things. It doesn't settle for what is. It can push us towards what could be. It can bring your crazy dreams into reality. But it can be a curse because it has an overly romanticized view of the past, thinking the past was always so much better, and it makes us long for what was never really there in the first place. Larry Osborne writes this, Idealism can make us like those racing greyhounds that chase a stuffed rabbit they will never catch. And you think about it, if they actually did catch it, what would they do with it? Ah, oh, it's metal. Ah, it's not really a rabbit. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, th- this idealism goes into a ton of areas in our lives today. I mean, a, a lot of people uh, have actually left their church looking for another church. And I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church that you're going to. I mean, if you disagree with their mission and their vision and their philosophy, you should go to a place that maybe you do agree with it. But a lot of times, just people leave churches because, hey, they're not good enough for... Me. Uh, people have left element before. And, and I'll tell you, it's not hard to find a better preacher. I get it, okay? But, but you know, today's churches are far from perfect. You know why? Because you're in it. And I'm in it. As soon as we show up, it is not perfect anymore because we are all messed up people. But if you're honest, it has always been this way. Even when we look back at the church through the ages, we always think, oh, the earlier church was so much better than today. Well, how about that? 2,000 years ago, Okay, the early church had kids sleeping with their stepmom. Not good. Not good. Okay? They had segregation over race, Jews and Gentiles. They'd have love of money over love of people, which Jesus and the apostles both denounced. 500 years ago, the scriptures were so buried under layers of tradition that no one knew what they actually said. So much so that the church was obsessed with building these cathedrals. And to make get money to build these cathedrals, they would sell indulgences, which is free passes on sin. If you have no money, you buy an indulgence. Oh, I just did this thing. Well, buy an indulgence will be okay. Well, didn't Jesus die for our sins on the cross? No, you need to buy the indulgence. If you couldn't afford an indulgence, you know what you did? Signed up for the Crusades. Those turned out so well. Hundred years ago, liberal scholarship, which I always think is an oxymoron, uh, sweeps over the church. Most colleges, seminaries, and pastors deny the supernatural. Uh, They reject the fundamentals of the faith. That's just 100 years ago. 50 years ago, people are bemoaning the end of the church. April 8, 1966, Time Magazine has this cover, Is God Dead? In the middle of the article, it predicts the end of preaching longer than 15 minutes. I've been preaching at you 15 minutes right now. Woo, you made it. See, they're all wrong. The church does have a future, even with all those warnings. And the future should be better than the past. The 50s and 60s and 70s, those aren't the good old days. Those are the days when non-smokers got shoved to the back of the plane to sit in the haze of cigarette-smoking bathroom flatulence. That's those days. The Pharisees, like us, they would even look at their leaders of the past and say, Oh, look how good our leaders of the past were compared with those today. Let's look at that, okay? Leaders of the past. Abraham. Abraham. I mean, Father Abraham, right? Abraham. That guy. I mean, three religions traced to this guy Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all traced to Abraham. Abraham was a liar that tried to pimp out his wife. It's not a good thing. You want to stay married? Don't do that. Okay? <laughs> Moses? I mean, Moses? I mean, Red Sea? Charlton Heston? Not so much Christian Bale, right? was that good? But hey, Charlton Heston, he's a murderer. He's a murderer, and he tries to cover up the murder, but doesn't do a good job, and the body's found. David, King David, David and Goliath, a man after God's own heart. What is David? David is an adulterer that tries to get someone drunk so we can claim the baby wasn't his. How about Peter? Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter, I mean, Peter, Peter, this guy, at the crucial juncture of his life, he denies Jesus three times as a savior. I mean, the early church we love to point to, they have, they have a lot of messed up views. The early church was in this culture that was hyper-sexualized, a lot like ours is today. But it caused many of these church leaders to view sex, even in marriage, as a terrible necessity. Sure, you can do it, but you better not like it. <laughs> like, oh, I hate this. Can we do it again? No, I hate, you know, I mean, I mean seriously. One church father castrated himself. Another church father, every time he looked at a woman, he'd go find a bramble bush and throw himself in it. So he'd like forget looking at, ah! So he'd stop looking, thinking about the woman he looked at. (laughs) Augustine, who is who is like one of the amazing church fathers, a great theologian, he misinterpreted a lot of text of scripture because he couldn't see past sexualization. And we would look at some of their beliefs and if they were around today, we'd probably call them heretics. Fiddler Osborne points out, God still allowed these flawed men to lead his church. Why? Because it's God's church. It is Jesus' church. Today, this whole idea of our idealism has turned into like a very ugly cynicism. We offer no grace to people. We critique everyone around us. In Luke eleven forty seven 47-51, Jesus rails at the Pharisees because they killed the prophets and then later erect monuments to their name. I mean, you take a guy like like John Calvin. I love John Calvin. I think he's one of the greatest theologians of the church. Uh, But he allows his followers to torture and kill one of his opponents at the stake for denying the Trinity and denying infant baptism. We don't do infant baptism. I thought about coming up with a pamphlet for infant baptism and showing you all the verses for it in the Bible. Better be blank because there are none. (laughs) Martin Luther. At the end of his life, he's got these horrible anti-Semitic writings. But most of us trace the Reformation back to his courage and his calling to bring people back to the grace of Jesus. John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. They had terrible marriages. They were terrible husbands. If they had kids, they were terrible fathers. But we still honor them today and forget all of their failures. If half the people we quote today were alive today, we'd rip them apart for their messed up lives and lifestyles. But after they're dead for a few years, we start to quote them endlessly. It's like our monument. I mean, we must be a people who can don't have a problem looking at people's failures, realizing it's by the grace of God that we're all saved, that these people that we quote, from, they, they aren't perfect. Jesus is the one who redeems and saves us. And the simple truth is, everything has been messed up since Genesis chapter 3. But if you want to be a good Pharisee, you've got to idealize the past and judge everything and around you by that ideal. But what do you do if you don't want to be a Pharisee? Glad you asked. <laughs> Okay, boy, okay. I'll give you two things out of the book. Number one is this. You've got to learn from the past without idealizing the past. You learn from the past without idealizing it. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. this old saying that those who don't learn from the past are going to repeat it. I think it's true. And so if we can look at the early church and see where they messed up and where they got it right, that would be a good thing. Uh, where they had God's approval, where they had God's disapproval, what we can learn. But in order to do that, we've got to take an accurate picture of the past. So in Acts chapter 2, I'll point some things out that when we hit Acts next year, I'm kind of stealing my own thunder before we get there. But uh, the early church, you'll see, had some really messed up people just like today, but they were forgiven and called and loved just like today. So here's the verse that we love to idolize. Okay, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Most have heard that, those are all really good things. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. But day by day, that translates as every single day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's amazing things going on in those verses. If you take a step back without an idealized view and just think about it. Anybody want to live in a hippie commune? One. Okay, one. Weirdo? No, okay. One. Anyone want to go to church, like church service, every single day? See? Not even that. (laughs) Right? I mean, and and not just that, but you've got to fly to Jerusalem every single day to do it. See, the problem with Acts chapter 2 is you try and make it how the church today is supposed to function. When Acts chapter 2 is what's called a descriptive text. It describes to you what happened. It's not a prescriptive text, which say what you're supposed to do. It's descriptive. It's descriptive. And there's a lot of wonderful things in there we can emulate and follow. But how about some negatives? Well, you look at it in in the real light. How about this? Uh, This early church, they ignored the Great Commission. He ignored the great commission. Jesus said, go out, make disciples of all nations. That's in Matthew 28. So one of the last things he said, right? Go out, make disciples of all nations. Jesus' spirit comes, and this church holds up in the city of Jerusalem. What God eventually does is he sends a couple of persecutions to make them go and scatter. Eventually, he destroys the city of Jerusalem to make them go and scatter. I was listening to this message last week on the book of Acts by somebody, and they said, and they said, how it works is... Uh, You're persecuted, scattered, and sent. That is not how it works. It is sent. They wouldn't go, so they were persecuted and scattered. So they would do what God called them to do. This church holds up together. Now, I know why they stayed. It's like a camp high. Oh, we're at camp. It's all great. We're all together. Woo! It's so wonderful. Signs and wonders, apostles. John is like the pastor preaching every week. I love it when John preaches. I don't want to go somewhere else and have some Yehu I don't know talking to me. But it wasn't what Jesus called them to do. He called them to go out. second thing that happened is this church in Jerusalem ran out of money. They were like all the left-behind groupies. And the day of Pentecost comes and 3,000 people get saved and added to their number. And they all decided to stay. It's like Jesus says, you know, go out make disciples of all nations. Why? Aren't you coming back tomorrow? No, he's not. There's a reason he told them to go out. And so when the money was gone, they either had to go home or they had to depend on generosity of others. In Jewish communities, hospitality, is a really high value. So people started selling their possessions to help others out. And it really doesn't matter because Jesus is coming back any day anyway. What happens later in this Jerusalem church is extreme poverty engulfs this church. So much so that you see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is taking offerings from Gentile churches. Scholars hold that Macedonia was probably one of the poorest regions and the poorest church in Christianity. And they took up an offering to Macedonia to send back to the church in Jerusalem. Now, other scholars speculate that this is why the no New Testament letter after the book of Acts commands or encourages selling or pulling resources in that way. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying generosity is bad. Don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of positive things in there but we must look for what they did right and what they did wrong so we know how to live as the church. The third thing is that this early church was a little bit racist. They're a little bit racist. Uh, you know, the, the Gentiles eventually bailed them out, but they did not like Gentiles. Uh, what, what you have is you have God sending the apostle Peter a specific vision That says, go preach the gospel to this guy named Cornelius. It's in Acts 10 and 11. And Peter's like, I'm not going to go. And God says, go preach the gospel. Why wouldn't he go? Because Cornelius was a Gentile. You know what most of us are? Gentiles. Exactly. See, but the early church was not a failure. It's a miracle of grace and the mercy of God. It should give us hope that as messed up as we are, Jesus still takes and moves us where we need to go because it's his church and it's his gospel. We don't idealize the past. We don't idealize a person. We don't idealize any church. We always look to Jesus. I mean, think about this. There's a reason why Paul had to write all those New Testament letters. Okay? Galatia was committed to Jesus, but were drawn away by a gospel of works. Ephesus is doctrinally sound, but they had forgotten their first love. Philippi, full of generous people, but it's almost torn apart by a chick fight between these two girls. Women. I'm kidding. Not about the chick fight, but... When Paul gives instructions to Timothy and Titus both about picking elders, he has to remind them not to use the town drunk, people with violent tempers, marital unfaithfulness, and dishonest business dealings. I mean, seriously, even the dumbest churches know that, right? (laughs) Apparently not, right? Okay, okay. So second thing, if you don't want to be a Pharisee, uh, is you speak the truth in love. Um, Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. One of the things that uh, Larry Osborne says is, God has always drawn straight lines with crooked sticks. He has always used the weak to show off his strength. He has always chosen the undeserving to demonstrate his grace. We should not be surprised if he continues to do the same thing today. So what do we do in that? You speak the truth in love. I think I spent a lot of time trying to break your idealized view of the past, please don't think I'm just capping on it. I think the church is an amazing grace of Jesus, so don't think I'm just you know, capping on it to do that. Uh, but I think there's a way we can confront churches and their failings and people's failings that brings true repentance and change. So in the Corinthian church, Paul wrote two letters to them uh, because they sued each other. They visited temple prostitutes. Not a good thing. Okay, they argued about dietary laws. They got drunk at communion. Also not a good thing. We, the, the wine cup is very small here, so I... Right? Maybe you went around to each one and you kicked everybody out and you might be able to. I don't know kind of lightweight you are, but whatever. Okay? Uh, they had they had potlucks where nobody shared. Like if you and I went out for Kung Pao chicken, I would not share my Kung Pao chicken with you. Don't even ask. I will stab you with my wife's chopstick. Okay? Because I, I can't Aim with uh, they emphasize spiritual gifts but not love. And so what Paul does is he meets their issues head on. That's, that's what he does. And so the first thing he does is, is he finds the good and he praises it. He finds the good and he praises it. So he begins with praise, not contempt, kind of like when Jesus talks to uh, the churches in the book of Revelation. You got to understand that when Paul writes this, the Holy Spirit is guiding him, so he's kind of writing the heart of God. First Corinthians chapter one verse two. This is what Paul says: "To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who are in every place, who in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." First off, what he does is he reminds them who they are. Again, just like Jesus in the book of Revelation, reminds them of their calling. This is who you are in Jesus. If you read those first nine verses in 1 Corinthians 1, he tells them they have been set apart to be holy, that they don't lack any spiritual gift, that they're enriched in speech and knowledge. He assures them that despite of their sin, they are still washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And after he does that, then he goes on to deal with his issues and rebuke that church. But he doesn't talk about them behind their back. He goes straight to their face. So second thing in this is, then you speak the truth in love. And when Paul does it, he writes with a heavy heart. He writes with tears, as if they're his own kids. And that is so much different than the critiques that we have today for other people. The critiques we have today are just filled with disgust and not tears. I mean, Paul was proud of the Corinthians in many ways. They're, they're in a horrible place, in a horrible culture, and yet they're figuring out how to live and love and follow Jesus even in the midst of that. But at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he ends his letter by saying this, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. He reminds them who they are, but he says, I, I don't know if it's going to help. And he lays out their sin, their problems, but his heart and change for the redemption and what he longs to see in their lives. Now, for you and me, I think the only way we will ever go into the people that Jesus calls us to be is to stop idealizing the past and look for our hope in Jesus Christ because our futures are all meant to be lived in him. Uh, this is going to be true of your marriages. If you always look at the past, and I can't believe they did these things, look how horrible they are, and you cannot look for the future and possibility that Jesus could ever change them, you are never going to get better. You have to look for what Jesus can and he will do. This is true in our churches, at our workplaces, in our friendships. All the failings that we see and have today, they are not new and they are not rare. If you think they are new and you think that they're rare, you're going to start despairing and be cynical and you'll start to live just like a Pharisee. Start to idealize the past and not live in the reality of Christ. Don't be blind to what God is doing in the present, what he's calling you and I to live in and and to do. The gospel makes all things new, even us. He makes us new, which means we don't have the right to lash out, but we have the obligation to speak the truth in love. It's really interesting. Uh, Luke 9, 51 uh, to 56. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans are like, hey, stop here. Jesus is like, no, my face is set. I'm going there. And so they kind of reject him. James and John, you know, the, the disciples, they say to Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven and wipe that place off the map. What do you think about that, Jesus? Like Jesus would go... Yeah, do it. That sounds like a good idea. And what he does is he turns around and he rebukes them for their anger and their harsh response. But he doesn't kick them out of being his disciples because he knows they need to grow. He knows they need to grow. He doesn't idealize what his disciples are supposed to be. He knows who they are and what they are called to. We are to be a people who defend God's glory. We are to help seek, purify his church, but if we idealize wrongly, we will become less and less like Jesus and more and more like Pharisees. Well-intentioned, but wrong. The, the beauty is that the, gray, that the gospel offers grace for Pharisees and non-Pharisees alike. And as followers of Jesus, we don't look to ideals. We look to what the reality is, and the reality is found in Jesus. And the questioning we'll come down to is, are your eyes on Jesus? Are your eyes on him first? Or are they on your ideals? When they're on your ideals, you're going to get frustrated with everybody around you because no one's going to live up to your expectations. You will get depressed because you won't live up to your expectations. But when your eyes are upon Christ, you'll realize that he is the one who has first loved us. He is the one who has first blessed us. He is the one who has first sought us. He is the one who has first redeemed us. And then everything else begins to come into line and make sense because he is the one who has first sought and bought his people. And then we can get rid of this idealized notion and simply live in the reality of who Christ is in our lives. This is why we talk about communion every week. Communion is the place where you come and lay down all these idealized notions of what this, this crazy standard you be held everybody up to, rather than praying for them and let, leaving them in Jesus' hands. And you, and you set it down before his feet, and you take that body, you take that cracker which represents his body, and you break it like his body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. And you get up and you walk in the truth of who he is, understanding what redemption and hope and salvation and sanctification and all those big Christian words actually mean. They mean that he is the one who is doing the work. And so we trust all of our lives into his more than capable hands. The band's going to come up. As they do, as I said, you're welcome to come and take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, uh, maybe you're in a place today where you just cannot figure out how to you know, get rid of your crazy, idealistic world and actually live in the truth and reality of the gospel, where you know, maybe your heroes of the past, you can realize that they, they weren't perfect. They had messed up and screwed up lives. You know, maybe the early church wasn't as perfect as we like to remember. I mean, next time we go through Acts, you're going to see some amazing things the early church did. And I think it was amazing, but, but there's a lot of messed up people in the early church. And yet Jesus comes in because he is the one who calls the church his own, and he is the one that brings redemption, and he is the one that works all things together because it is his church. We must be a people who keep our eyes upon him. And if you're a person who your eyes constantly get up who he is, they'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Give me to be part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response. Uh, so just like communion, you actually have to get up and put in an offering box. Uh, there's some cookies in the back after last service. I saw them. They look glorious. So if you guys would like to grab something to eat, we encourage you to do that and, and meet some other people. You know, maybe... Uh, talk about being in a gospel community and what that looks like and maybe have others come alongside you and, and call you on the places where maybe your ideals you know, are what you're looking towards and you're not looking towards the person of Christ anymore. And maybe these people can step alongside you and help call you to what Jesus intends for in your life, in my life, and all of us living in community together doing that sort of thing because he is good. He is good. He didn't, you know, he, he comes where we are in our messed up lives and calls us and saves us there. And then he begins to move us and change us and mold us into the people that we were meant to be. We are his people. We are his church. And so Christ is the one that we look forward and look to. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live and walk knowing you as the reality of our lives. Father, I think all of us at some point could say quite honestly that we have placed our own ideals and our own lives above the reality of you. That so often our frustration is from our unrealistic expectations. not simply in humbleness, living in the grace and the goodness of you. So I ask that you would teach us first to see you as you are, that you have saved, that you have redeemed, that you have called and brought us home. And then secondly, we would understand that it starts with you. That we would understand that our great hope and our great salvation and and the life that we get to live in is given so graciously from your hand. And then in that understanding, we would look at those around us and begin to see the world around us with the same grace and hope that you do. That we would more and more and more become like your people of people who reflect and imitate and live in the grace of our good and loving God, that you would empty us of all that distracts us from you and fill us daily with your spirit so we would understand your calling. We understand the hope That we would see the world around us as you do. Empty us and fill us. Teach us to live as your people in your grace. Because you have saved us. We ask this in your son's good name.